name of Christ our Lord. I can think of no better way to start any new year than the worship of the risen Savior. Every Lord's Day is Resurrection Day. It isn't something to be considered once a year. It is something to live by daily. We serve a resurrected king. Amen. <clears throat> For those of you who came in after we had begun the service, um, some of you will already notice my voice doesn't sound quite right. I'm getting something here in my throat, and I was unfortunately hearing that in my wife this morning. I was thinking I was just having uh, a regular allergy attack, which I have, but uh, this may be something else. If it is, uh, I, I'm not unsociable, but I will avoid everybody this morning, uh, and that's love. <laughs> I suppose there is a place for uh, loving unsocialness. For those of you that I normally hug, I am hugging you in my heart. For those of you that I normally shake hands with, I am firmly and joyfully shaking your hand. For those of you that I stand a little distance and wave at, I'm waving at you. <clears throat> it is all in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I will be making myself a little scarce and... Uh, uh, I will be having the men who help with the Lord's Supper to do all the handling of the elements this morning. I will read the scriptures and I will oversee the Lord's Supper, but I will touch nothing. And uh, I don't want to send all of you home with some kind of bug if that's what I've got. <clears throat> that being said, please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Again, I do want to welcome all of uh, those of you that are visiting with us this morning. It's a great delight to have you here. We are always glad to have uh, uh, visitors, and uh, we do pray that you will know the Lord's blessing amongst us this morning. It is uh, among the greatest joys I've had in some time that uh, with us this morning is uh, Chet Hansen and his wife, Kathy. Um, last year, I sent out a link to a testimony that uh, he made for his uh, grandchildren. And it was such a blessing to me, I sent it to the congregation. Um, the reason it was such a blessing to me is that we were both in the same uh, wicked and perverse music business together. He was my booking agent, and uh, <clears throat> we were delighting yesterday in the way the Lord has dealt with us. Very few people leave celebrity, very few. you got lots of people out there saying, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Then they're in movies that are foul and filthy. <clears throat> this is no witness to Christ, <clears throat> but it was a delight to have someone that uh, was an important part of my 
career that we both left. And we had a great time talking about how we left yesterday. It was wonderful. It was just wonderful. <laughs> I think if, uh, if I was standing in a pool of blood, I'd still be here this morning. So uh, delighted that we have all of you here. And I do trust that you'll make acquaintance with all of our visitors this morning. And uh, you'll want to uh, meet Chet and Kathy. They've come from Kansas. And uh, we're at a family reunion and graciously came down to spend yesterday and today with us. So I don't hope, I mean, I hope I don't uh, send you back with something you didn't come with, other than joy. That being said, I hope that this will not be too much of a distraction. I know it doesn't sound like me, but it still is. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. Please stand with me, brethren, once again. God, in our day, by His Spirit and Word, speaks to us. We're not here to have a lecture. We're here to hear from, believe, and obey God as He speaks to us. 1 Timothy chapter 3 beginning in this precious verse 1. This is God's word. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. Not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Amen. Amen. May the Lord open our eyes to understand the importance of this passage. May we take it to heart and may we live by it. Let's unite our hearts in prayer. Let's remain standing in the presence of the Almighty. Our Father, our Father who art in heaven, We love thee. As we read thy scriptures. As we sing. These beautiful and. Biblical hymns. Our hearts. 
are deeply moved that thou wouldst have any love for such as we. And yet, O God, thou hast loved thy people before the foundation of the world. Thou didst purpose to give thy son for their redemption, that his precious blood would wipe away all their crimes against thee. We thank thee for the eternal love and thy mighty power which reached down into our darkness and shined the light of thy truth in our hearts. While Satan did his best to blind our minds. Thou didst overcome his wicked purpose. And you shined the light, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God in our souls. We thank thee for granting us repentance by the Holy Spirit. We thank thee that thy word brought us to submit to our precious Lord. And we thank thee for the mighty work that thou dost do in the hearts of sinful people. Now, O oh God, we ask thee to do that today. There are lost ones here. Whatever their arguments and objections or even whatever religious blindness they stand in, dispel it by the glorious word of God. Spirit of God, if we have grieved thee, pardon us that thou mightest flow freely in the hearts and minds of those that are here. May we be convinced, if nothing else, that God has been with us today. Now come, Lord. Do a great work. And I pray that the work that thou dost this very day will go past the walls of this building and affect families and affect cities and affect this world for the growing kingdom of God. Do thy mighty conquering work O King of Kings, while the nations rejoice in their perversion, their wickedness, and their love of money, Father, may thy glorious kingdom spread through this world, drawing them out of darkness into the glorious light of Christ. We pray not only for thy people worldwide, that thou wouldst bless them, encourage them, and build them up in the faith today. We pray also for our enemies. We pray, O oh God, that thou would penetrate their darkness, shine the light of King Jesus. May the glorious gospel of the crucified and resurrected Savior become real in their hearts. 
Let them drop on their faces in the White House and in the administrative buildings and in all the organizations of this planet. And may there be a sweeping power of the gospel and of Christ's spirit in our day. May we see it, O God. But let us live in the light of thy coming. And we pray it all in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The resurrected Christ chose and appointed Paul to be the apostle to the Gentiles. That means that Paul was Christ's mouthpiece to the Gentiles. And Paul appointed Timothy, his son in the faith, to a daunting and intimidating work in the Gentile church at Ephesus. Charge some. That means command them. Charge some that they teach no other doctrine. The church was infected with toxic doctrine. So Timothy was the apostle's mouthpiece to that church. False doctrine was destroying Christ's order in the Ephesian church. That's what false teaching does. False teaching makes no one holy. False teaching makes no one alive in Christ. It is only God's truth. Empowered by the Spirit that raises men from the dead. So, Paul corrected Timothy to correct and silence the false teachers. To re-establish and preserve Christ's glorious gospel and doctrine. Timothy's work was to reform Christ's order for law and gospel. Christ's order for worship Christ's order for prayer. Christ's order for men and women. And Christ's order for church life. By doing that, Timothy would reform Christ's order for daily life and the advancement of God's kingdom. You are to learn God's word here. Understand it. Believe it. And then apply it to your life out there. Sunday Christians are no Christians. You are saved to live daily in the light of the living Christ. Now, therefore, to accomplish all that, Timothy would need to teach the Ephesian congregation Christ's qualifications for the teachers of the church, for the pastors of the church. That was crucial for churches then, And continues to be crucial now. And for these two reasons. There are more but I limited it to two. The first reason. The centrality. Of God's authoritative truth. This is not some of the truth. This is God's truth for his people. God the father is the God of truth. 
Psalm 31, 5. His son is the way and the truth. John 14, 6. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. John 14, 17. The Bible is the word of truth. John 17, 17. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. 1 Timothy 3, 15. We're to traffic in truth. Be careful of the be careful of the internet and be careful of the media. <clears throat> the second reason, the preservation of God's authoritative truth. Not only the centrality, but the preservation of God's authoritative truth. Every God-appointed prophet was God's mouthpiece to men. Jesus Christ was God's mouthpiece. The apostles were Christ's mouthpiece. And every Holy Spirit-qualified pastor is Christ and the apostles' mouthpiece. Every pastor must preach and teach the word of God to feed God's sheep and to glorify our triune God. He's not interested in our good ideas. He's interested in his everlasting truth and our embracing it and, get ready, obeying it. As we learned from Jonathan Griffith's helpful book a few weeks ago, quote, the New Testament makes it clear that preachers act as God's heralds who proclaim his word on his behalf. When authentic, faithful Christian preaching of the biblical word takes place, that preaching constitutes a true proclamation of the word of God that enables God's own voice to be heard. Close quote. This should be an experience, not just an auditory experience. This should be an experience of hearing God, embracing God by faith, and learning how to walk with him day by day. As weak as the voice is that's coming out of the pulpit, it is my hope that you hear the mighty voice of God. Pastors after God's heart then play a central role in the outworking of God's eternal purpose for Christ's churches and the advancement of his kingdom. For that reason, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work, as our holy text says. So, our message is entitled, Desiring to be a Bishop, Part 2. For those of you visiting with us, in July, uh, we had the departure of our most beloved uh, fellow pastor, uh, Brother Clarence. And so, since that time, we have been in prayer about the Lord raising up another man to labor here. <clears throat> but uh, my purpose, uh, as we have advanced through the last few months, is to be teaching the congregation, from the word. Uh, And many of you already knew these things. 
but to teach the entire congregation who God identifies as the kind of men that should be in the pulpit. Not what we like as such. Not that we're looking for someone that we despise. But the fact of the matter is, the person who tells you the truth loves you the most. And I'm telling you, every one of you is full of filters that hate the truth. Beginning right here. We need correction. As Paul says to Timothy later in his second epistle to him, reprove, rebuke, exhort. How about those words? You sign on for that? Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all patience. There must be a loving patience with all that rebuke. But that's what we need. Every pastor needs to sit with the holy rebuker and be rebuked himself before he gets into the pulpit. So, desiring to be a bishop. That's the, in, the title of our message again. This is part two. Now, beloved people of God, and I mean those words. I do not cease to pray for you. I ask Christ that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. You understand that? I'm praying that the living God, if you're alive in Christ, I'm praying that he will move in you by the power of his spirit to give you wisdom regarding his revelation and knowledge of his book. You can read this book all day long. Without the Holy Spirit, you will never get it right. You can know a whole lot of verses. You can argue with people about your theological views, but you can be as stony and cold-hearted and lost as anyone in, in false religion. So, I pray that he would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Him. The regenerate heart wants Christ. The regenerate heart wants to know the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He wants that. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Those are such important words, especially for you young people. It's for all Christians, but young people, the world of lies is expanding in in nanoseconds. You're having a world that is enslaving you by the moment. You need to figure out what the truth is and how you're going to walk in it. So the understanding, enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling. We have a hope in all this darkness. And it's Jesus Christ. doesn't mean things are going to go our way. It does mean it'll go his way and we will be delighted in him, whatever he brings. <clears throat> and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. We have a glorious inheritance waiting. There is a glorious day coming when we when we will see the king in his beauty. We will see the king in his beauty. And then every single one of our senses will be filled up to the max. We will enjoy 
peace, glory, joy, love, beauty as never before. Because we will be in the presence of the one who loved us before he said, let there be light. So with those things in mind, we have a brief review here. Paul wanted Timothy to describe a biblical overseer. That's in verse 1. The God-breathed text says, this is a true saying. Why would an apostle have to say that? (laughs) I mean, wouldn't we expect him to be telling the truth? But why is he saying that? Because there are false teachers in the congregation. And he's saying, in the light of what you're hearing, I'm telling you something that's true. Because he was an apostle of God. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. Now, as we learned last time, apostolic letters were circulated among Christ's churches. Paul wrote to the Colossians, when this epistle is read among you, they didn't have Bibles. They had apostolic letters that came to them. Everybody didn't go home and say, well, let me check that out with my scroll. Most people had no Bible. So they read these letters in the congregation. They were expecting the people to listen. When this epistle is read among you, cause it to be, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans. And that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Swap those letters. Read them in the congregation. Hear what I'm saying to you. I've said it to the Colossians. I've said it to Laodiceans. You there in Ephesus need to hear all this. So Paul affirmed Timothy's authority to the Ephesians. By writing his letter to Timothy instead of the congregation... Paul was affirming Timothy's authority to all who were present. Can you get that? All right. In those days, someone would read that letter to the congregation. It's most likely that Timothy did. The letter is to him. Now, it served many purposes, but one of them was to put everybody on notice. Timothy was Paul's man. Paul was affirming Timothy's authority. So Paul had excommunicated Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan. That means they were excommunicated. They were put out of the church because they had made shipwreck of the faith. They were false teachers. the entire congregation would realize that Paul had excommunicated those two men because of their aberrant doctrine. Paul rejected these two men and their doctrine on one hand, and he approved Timothy with his apostolic authority and doctrine. Can you see the contrast? That's what's happening by what he's saying. Everybody here is saying, these guys were wrong. I turned them over to Satan. But Timothy here, is under my aegis. He's under my authority. He's speaking for me. And even though he was speaking on Paul's behalf and by Paul's command, he was speaking as the mouthpiece of Jesus Christ, the head of the church. So the apostolic doctrine of Jesus Christ, 
God's word to the world about the salvation of souls was at stake. Therefore, in the face of doctrinal lies, Paul delivered a saying to Timothy and the congregation that they were to believe. Paul emphasized the vital role of bishop by emphasizing that his saying is believable. It's trustworthy and reliable for God's people in the face of lies from false teachers. Paul first used the formula in chapter 1, verse verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. Faithful and worthy that you should accept it. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I tell you on the authority of Paul's words to Timothy to the Ephesians, I tell you on the authority of this book, you need to believe that. That Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. Not nice people, not your nice, you know, um, the people that you might meet at the Rotary Club or in the Masonic Hall, God forbid, or wherever. You know, if you want to be a part of the Moose Club, that's all up to you, but that doesn't give anybody the righteousness that God accepts. Only Jesus Christ brings the righteousness that God accepts. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Paul knows exactly what he's saying. He met him on the road to Damascus. And he said, I'm telling you, under the authority of the risen Christ, believe this, Jesus saves sinners. Are you a sinner? Don't tell me you're not. If you won't use the word sinner, you'll at least say, oh, well, uh, you know, well, nobody's perfect. Well, nobody's perfect. That's exactly right, except for Christ. But without Christ's righteousness, your imperfection will drop you into hell at the end of your life. Paul is saying something powerful here. This is something you ought to believe. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Amen. We wouldn't be here, right? If he hadn't had mercy, if he hadn't found us in our wormhole of sin. So, in the face of false teachers and false teaching, Paul is saying, I'm telling you the truth. If a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires or desireth a good work. Therefore, as the congregation hears the spirit-inspired qualifications that Paul delivers through Timothy... The congregation should come to its senses. Now, what do I mean by that? They should realize that their present leaders do not qualify. The men that are teaching them deserve what Hymenaeus and Alexander got. They need to be put out of Christ's church because they're teaching lies. That's sobering. But you see, that's exactly the kind of wake-up moment congregations have to have wake up these are the kind of men that should be leading the church washer like an old boy i mean he's a good fishing partner that means nothing nothing well i really like you got a kind of got a nice wife it doesn't matter not that she should be a witch of some sort 
But the point of the matter is this. God says, here are my men. They're like this. Your good ideas and your favoritism do not matter. So, Paul delivers this to Timothy. They should also realize that they stand in very great need of those kind of men. That should be the next thing that uh, this letter provokes. The men you're listening to do not qualify. And you should have a man like the one I'm going to describe. So then, next major heading is, what does it mean to desire? What does it mean to desire the office of a bishop? We can read words like this and not think about them very much. If any man desire the office of a bishop, now notice, Paul doesn't say immediately put him in the pulpit. He says he simply desires a good work. We get that? Just because somebody says, you know, man, I've tried a lot of things, been a deacon for about 14 years. I'd like to try that preacher thing. You know, just because he has that desire does not mean he's the man. The desire doesn't make you a bishop. But if you desire and you must desire, then you're desiring a good work. You're desiring a good thing. It's ancient The word desire here is very interesting. Its ancient literal use was to stretch oneself, to stretch out. Lo and Nida's lexicon says, to eagerly desire to accomplish some goal or purpose, to strive to attain. This isn't just something like, oh, I'd like to try that. That would be a fool. And a church would be full of fools fools if they put a man in like that i just want to try this out okay give it your best shot and this is not it it's to strive to attain if someone has that desire to aspire to to eagerly long for something and he needs to know what he's eagerly longing for the role of a pastor is work he desires a good Work, blessed, joyful, diligent, difficult, exhausting, heartbreaking, Christ-honoring work. It's all those things and more. It is by God's appointment and not by man's invention. It is a good work because God designed it. It's a good work because God ordained it. It is a good work for the greatest and most important work of all. The declaration of the gospel, the preaching of the whole counsel of God's word, the conversion of sinners, the sanctification of God's blood-bought people, the establishment of churches, and the advancement of God's triumphant kingdom. There's no higher work. There's no better work. There's no harder work. It'll cost you everything because Christ paid everything for us. It will cost us everything to follow after him with all the heart. Yeah. It's not going to be a bed of roses on the way to heaven, y'all. And I think this nation's about to find that out. 
I hope that I am wrong. But if you don't see the clamp down that's coming, you are in a dream somewhere. Or you, you may have been a government school victim. <clears throat> if you get your news from CNN, we need to have a talk. Yes. So the, the point is, is to say this. We need truth in this day. And the men who are to handle this work are to be men of truth. Men that are filled with the word of God and the Holy Spirit. So, it's a good work of fervent prayer and the ministry of God's inspired and infallible word. It is a good work of proclaiming word-filled, Christ-saturated, and spirit-illuminated sermons to God's hungry flock. They're to feed the sheep. That's exactly what Paul told the elders of Ephesus. Feed the sheep. That's the whole idea of being a shepherd. That's what a pastor means. Lead you into those green pastures where you feast on Christ. <clears throat> it is a good work to desire the role of a bishop. It is a desire that is often a thankless work. It is a desire for an impossible work without the grace of Christ. It's impossible without the empowering Holy Spirit. No one's up for the task except those that have been qualified by God and transformed by his work to do that work. <clears throat> One of our brothers here has a, a plane, an airplane business. He works on the electronics in those planes. He would not hire a guy that came in and said, oh, you know, I read a book about that once. Will you hire me? Not going to happen. Shouldn't happen. If that happens, <laughs> warn me. I won't fly in your plane. <laughs> but, you know, people look at, at, at the pastoring work as just like, well, what do you do during the week, man? You talk for a little while on Sunday. You talk for a little while on Wednesday. I mean, do you do anything else? That is really the way many people think. And unfortunately... There have been many phonies in the pulpit that helped them with that idea. But that's exactly why this passage exists. It is in the holy word of God. Here's the man you look for. <clears throat> it is the most important work in God's kingdom for fallen sinners. Not that the man is the most important, but a man who will be faithful with God's message. It's God's message. And we need to tremble at that. It's God's words. It's not ours to... to when I was younger, there used to be a thing called silly putty. And you could take it and you could make it into any shape you wanted to. You can't do that with God's word. He's the potter, we're the clay. He needs to shape us any way he wants to. So, <clears throat> the, 
By introducing this desire with a faithful saying formula, Paul reinforces how good that desire is. He desires a good work, the best work, the hardest work, the greatest work for fallen human beings. Now, it's a word that brings God's, a work that brings God's glory, a work that bears the fruit of salvation to the lost, a work that makes Christ's blood-bought people more Christ-like. It is of exuberant joy in the salvation of never-dying souls. It is in the heart-wrenching sorrow of watching some apostatize from Christ. And it happens. It happens. It is the good work of earnestly contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It is the unspeakable sorrow of watching ungodly men turn the grace of our God into lasciviousness. That is the day you are living in. You get this? You go to a lot of churches today and it's like, well, the Old Testament was really a bad thing. It was really a hard thing. It was really just a legalistic thing. But in the New Testament, we can live like we want and call ourselves Christians. That's a demonic deception. They've turned the grace of our God into lasciviousness. If you know the grace of God, it makes you want Christ. It makes you hungry for righteousness. It makes you desirous to walk in whatever he says in his word. Well, I don't have time for his word. You don't have time then for salvation. It's the truth. You must know it and believe it. But when you do, there's joy unspeakable and full of glory. There is encouragement. There is strength. There is building up in the faith. There's a life to live, no longer a life to waste. Robert Yarbrough, commentator, wisely says, quote, It is suggested that the writer is not speaking of inner emotional feeling divorced from reality. This is the idea of desiring to be a bishop. He's saying now this is, Paul's purpose here is not speaking of inner emotional feeling divorced from reality. In other words, do you have the foggiest notion of what you're going into? Now, you know, you you can have, I generally demand that if someone wants me to officiate their marriage, that they have six sessions, premarital sessions with me. And we're going to talk about what you're about to do. And from someone who has just passed his 48th wedding anniversary, I can tell you when I said I do, I didn't have the foggiest notion what I was doing. Not in the slightest. And I thought I was a Christian. I knew nothing about what God demands from marriage. It's the same thing with walking with Christ. 
when you repent of your sins and you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're, you're marrying Christ. Amen. What? He's the bridegroom. You're the bride. Is that right? We have, and we have covenant vows. We're in the new covenant, which is built on better promises. Now, are we faithful to that marriage vow? Are you? You know, those are questions we have to ask ourselves. Those are questions we have to ask ourselves. So, so what, what Yarbrough is getting at, I trust that was it, the writer is not speaking of inner emotional feeling divorced from reality. You got to have some idea. Today, you got a lot of so-called hit-and-run evangelists. You're lost. You're a sinner. You're on the way to hell. Don't want to do that, do you? No. Believe on Jesus. You'll be okay. You believe? All right. Praise the Lord. And they go on to the next. And it's like, no. You've just done what I did at my wedding. Had no idea what I was saying. And then they go find a church, and things don't work out. I mean, very often these guys are filling churches up with goats, not sheep. Paul stayed two years in some places and was day by day reasoning and persuading. He didn't have a one, two, three formula. He explained what it meant for Christ to come into this world. He explained the doctrines of the faith. He explained that all of this was in light of God's kingdom. And he explained that Christ taught things like this. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow after me. And that's a little bit different to sign up for, isn't it? You need to know what it's about. What are you about to do? You may seal your testimony with your blood. It isn't just about, oh, great, I've been living like hell, but I can still have some hope for heaven just because I nodded to something for a few moments. Are you with me? Read the book of Acts. Read the sermons. Read how they dealt with people. It's vital. So we need not to just be giving in to an emotional feeling. How many, those of you that have ever gone looking for a used car, you know there's such a thing as stress and pressure from a salesman, right? You know, and they can talk you into it. There are people that come to your door and sell you a vacuum cleaner you don't want and that you don't need. But they're able to sell you on it. And there are people that can come up and say, you don't want to burn an hell, do you? Okay, believe in Jesus. Well, there's a truth there. Don't misunderstand me. But you want them to understand what they're doing. What does baptism mean? When someone goes down under the water, disappears from our sight, and comes back up. They've died to what they were, and now they're alive to walk with Jesus. Well, we might be moving toward a part three. I want us to understand then, as Yarbrough completes his thought, he says, rather the will here is brought into line with a goal given by God. This understanding would fit what Paul likely has in mind, which is not a dreamy-eyed advancement to a posh appointment 
but enlistment in a duty that is always exacting and often thankless. Close quote. Man, that nails it. You say, well, it was kind of like a sea of words to me. What are you saying? You don't want to say, oh, I just want to try out being an elder. It's like you need to, have, you need to be in touch with reality and realize you are going to be the representative of Christ. How did Christ live? According to the word of God. And then he spoke plainly to sinful men. And there were times that some were converted in hearing him. And there were other times when men killed him, nailed him to the cross, beat him, spit on him. That's the work of an elder in small. You're taking part of that. Martin Luther said, quote, I always see many of the sort who seize the office of teaching in contempt of all good works. They are looking for glory. Close quote. It's a place of prestige. As a matter of fact, it used to be an old saying, if you don't know how to do anything, well, become a preacher. Boy, that's exactly the opposite. If you want to be an elder, you need to say, I need to know Christ. I need to learn Christ. I need to be walking with Christ. And I need to live like Christ. To the best of my feeble, limited ability. And get ready. By the way, I was going to bring my copy of Joel Beakey's book this morning. As we begin the new year, I urge you, I urge you, this is no command for those of you that are overly sensitive, but I'm urging you to get his book. If you think you want to be a pastor and or if you're just a church member, it's called Pastors and Their Critics. I worked through it on my vacation It's a life-changing book for anybody who understands what he's saying. You need to know what pastors do and what's legitimate criticism and what isn't. You need to know that. And pastors need to know that some of the criticisms that come are legitimate and they need to listen to it. You really need to read the book. I really urge you, you adults, every member of the church ought to read it. That ought is not a command. So, if you want to be enlightened and have a better idea of what this is about, you need to read it. So, Paul could say, listen, Paul could say, in the light of what Martin Luther said, they're just looking for glory. He said, listen to the difference. I will be, I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. Now, those are Holy Spirit-inspired words. Listen, Corinth was a big package of headaches. He's not saying, I'm so proud of y'all. I mean, y'all do everything right. I hardly have to tell you anything. Man, y'all have got it down, and y'all are the supermodel for everybody else. That's not the way it was. There was bickering, there was fighting, they were suing each other. Some of the people were going to harlots. I mean, some were showing up drunk for the Lord's Supper. Who would want to sign up for that church? And he calls it a church of Jesus Christ and said, I would be spent for you. Why does he sound like that? Because he sounds like Christ. 
He knew Christ. Christ spent himself for people like us. I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. How about that? That's pastoral work. It's not the only side of it. I'm just saying, hey, it's not living out on the golf course. Living on the golf course. You can go play golf if you want to. But this is Paul. Listen, listen. He went on to say, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears. Not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly for you. Being in pastoral work is praying for people that criticize you to your face, behind your back. People living in ways that they know contradicts what they're hearing from the the pulpit. And instead of saying, I'm writing them off, it's saying, how do I love them more? How do I love them better They're destroying themselves and they don't see it. How do we get through to them, Lord? Much affliction and anguish I wrote to you. So then, what is a bishop? After all of that, if it's a good work, if it's a God-honoring work, what is a bishop? Because of the widely varying usage in our day, the word bishop is not well understood. We therefore need to consider its definition and meaning. The Greek words are episkopae, and episkopos, many of you know I don't um, bring up the Greek very often, but I'm doing it because that should sound familiar to us. Those words should sound familiar to you, don't that they ring a bell? That's where we get our words episcopal, where we get our words episcopalian. It comes from that. <clears throat> but those words are connected to the idea of accepting responsibility for the care of someone. It's not being a king over them. It's accepting the responsibility for them. Do you understand that every pastor, every faithful pastor is going to give account for all the people the Lord has brought his way? Do you get that? I mean, there are men that I wish I could go back to and say, you know, when I was sitting under you, I thought I knew more than you did. I wouldn't have put it that way, but I sure did. I'm grieved over the way that I treated some of the men that pastored me, who had agreed to care for me. 
The word also means to oversee. I'm giving another commentator, not because they're the authority, but very often they are men well-schooled in the languages. Uh, <clears throat> and Walter Liefeld says, quote, the word Paul uses here for church leadership is episcope. It is hard to translate. Overseership might be the best literal rendering. Overseership. It describes the work or position of an overseer. Therefore, a bishop is an overseer, a man engaged in supervising, watching over, and caring for the Lord's people, encouraging them when they're down, rebuking them when they're straying from the path. There are a lot of men that gravitate to one or the other. They just always want to be on somebody's case. Or they just want to love, love, love everybody while they're going to hell. Can't do that. You have to learn the sheep and try to understand where they are. And then cry out to God, how do I minister to them? How do I say this? How I know that with them, I can be really straightforward. With this one over here, I can say two sentences and they're crushed to death. How do I deal with that? It's agreeing to the oversight of all the people God sends you. And sometimes they're not very lovable. And sometimes they are. I thank the Lord for those that are lovable. <laughs> but the Lord has a way of sending characters my way. Because oh. he's had to deal one with me all of my life. So it's Hard to, over, to translate the idea of overseership, but that's, that's the idea. Uh, as we will see when we consider the qualifications one, one by one, a bishop must be a mature, exemplary Christian. A mature, exemplary Christian. Everybody at that point usually wants to point to Charles Spurgeon and said, it was, it was a great pastor at 16. Okay, are you Spurgeon? Let's hear it. If you're not, how about going along with the word? It generally means a mature, exemplary Christian. Why? Because he doesn't just get up and talk. He lives in front of the people so that they learn how to walk with Christ. And if they have any common sense, they know how fallible they are. It's an impossible work without the Holy Spirit. So, he's not a perfect man. He will be flawed in every one of the qualifications. And to one degree or another, he will fail in them at various times. I've never seen it any other way. And I'm talking about good men. Nevertheless, he must exhibit that all the qualifications are part of his regular character. He's, he's a weak human being like you are. That's why he can usually speak to your condition. I had someone say to me once after a sermon, 
you bug my house? Do you hear what's going on in my house? I said, why? He said, like, you just read our week last week. And I said, I'll tell you who that is. It is the Spirit of God. Right? No, I don't bug anybody's house. But I am a human being that needs a Savior. And I know the things I have to wrestle with. And I know the things that I've heard other people wrestle with. That's why just a guy coming out of seminary with a head full of ideas of what he's going to do in the church generally isn't the guy to go for right away. He hadn't lived long enough to make all the errors that I've made. And they have to have some learning, some humility. It isn't just knowing books. It's learning people. God's blood-bought sheep. I hope we understand this. He's not perfect, but qualified. He's not perfect, but qualified. Listen, I've, had, I've been around people who were so picky, they would not have let the apostle Paul be a pastor in the church. For that matter, dads, I've met some dads that they wouldn't have let the apostle Paul marry their daughters. These guys are not good enough. Where are you going to find a guy good enough for your daughter? Now, there's some things he needs to be. There's no question. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But, I mean, it's like they want perfection. And they're not perfect. That's amazing. Well, the sobering fact is that no man can make himself these things. These qualifications are the fruit, number one, of regeneration. Number two, the sanctifying work of the Holy Ghost. And number three, the gifts of the Holy Ghost. But we can put it another way. An overseer is a qualified man who has become identifiably Christ-like. Identifiably Christ-like. You see, if you don't know much about Christ, you're going to have a hard time picking a fellow. Right? It always comes back to we need to know the Lord. We need to know his word. We need to be full of the scriptures so that we have something to talk about. Well, so he's he's a qualified man who's become identifiably Christ-like in word and deed. As Paul said to the Ephesian elders, take heed therefore unto yourselves. Look out for you. That's how he starts off. Look out for you. Watch yourself is what he's saying. Watch yourself and to all the flock. Didn't start with the flock. He starts with him. Watch yourself. Because they're going to be watching you. And it's, it's like a, 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 a mouse trap with the cheese of criticism to nibble on. They're watching. They demand of you what they very often do not demand of themselves. Paul says, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock over the which, hear the language, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. The word overseers, there's the word bishops. All right? 
They have a responsibility to God. They are over you in a delegated authority. But they're not over you like a dictator. Let's push that a little further than we'll end for today. This is the idea of bishops ruling in their congregations. <clears throat> if there's anything that democratic America despises, it's the idea that someone has authority over you. They don't, however, mind having authority over others, but they don't like you having authority over them. Now, because they administer the authoritative word of God in the local church, the elders rule God's flock. What's the authority? Not the man himself, but the word of God. They rule, but it is never to be an authoritarian rule. Never. It is never to be a tyrannical rule. It is never to be just what I think is right or wrong. You might be right in the middle of a conscience controversy that you're making a law for everybody around you. Can you discern that? It's not easy. Pastors are to be Christ-like servant rulers. Let me repeat that. Pastors are to be Christ-like servant rulers, exercising God's word in the flock. Jesus said to his disciples, I am among you. This is the living God come in the flesh. He's not some little wimp, some little hippie putting flowers in the barrels of people's guns. This is the living God come in the flesh. He said, I'm among you sinful, block-headed disciples as he that serveth. Can we hear that? If that's not manifest in someone who's going to be an elder, he has no business in, the, in, in serving God's people, in taking the office. He should be among the people as one who serves. <clears throat> Again, Jesus said, ye call me master and Lord. And ye say, well, for so I am. He didn't deny it. I'm your master. That means I'm your teacher and I'm your Lord. I'm the boss. And he says, <clears throat> if I then your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, which in those days was considered the filthiest part of the body. If I've washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. I'm going to tell you, and I don't mean to be hateful, I hope this is not overboard offensive, a lot of men that are in the pulpit just want to be in the pulpit. That's all. They don't want to be among God's people serving them. That's not the Christ picture. I've known many who they like the whole idea of preaching and then 
getting a nice big package for vacation and all of that kind of stuff, the dreamy-eyed stuff that Yarbrough was talking about. It's like, no, this is hard work. This is trench work. This is spend-your-life work. On the day I was ordained, one of my dearest friends in the world, who was a pastor, lifelong pastor, came up to me. Everything was over. He was generally considered to be a pretty rough guy. But he came over, and he had a twinkle in his eye. After the ordination, I was sitting there, and he, he took me by the shoulder, and he leaned over, and he kissed me. And then he smiled really big, and he said, Welcome to the most thankless work on the planet. This is the day I was ordained. I thought, well, that's encouraging. <laughs> but he wasn't trying to poison the well. It's the very thing, same thing again that I was talking about. It's being in reality. Living in reality. If you're doing this for accolades, get out of the pulpit. If you're doing this because you want people to think you're something, get out of the pulpit. If you're doing this because you want to see how many downloads you get on sermon audio, get out of the pulpit. Give yourself to that group of people, no matter how wonderful they are or how difficult they are to deal with. Charles Simeon, a great Anglican pastor, had one of the most criticizing congregations anybody knew of, and he stayed with them his whole ministry. He stayed with them. And they were still criticizing me all the years. And he said, that's the flock the Lord has given me. And I served them. To their gripes. That was my word. And so, so get in your head. It's to be a ruler, but a servant ruler. It's real authority, but he's not to be an authoritarian. It is a genuine rule. This is what our master says. Brother, you need to be walking in it. This is what our master says. Sister, you're running off the rails. This is what our master says. Oh, if someone comes to you and said, I've been wrestling with this thing, but the Lord has granted me repentance. Praise the Lord. Amen. Stay in the fight. Right. Encourage, reprove, rebuke, comfort. It's all over the place. One thing that hasn't changed in the new year is the way this clock works. <clears throat> so, let me bring this to a close for today. <clears throat> Peter said, The elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder. This is what? Peter is saying. And a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you. Feed the flock of God. On the day of my ordination, I had some men that I stood in awe of. But they, because they were faithful pastors and not because they were necessarily men with a lot of letters behind their names but they were faithful pastors. And one of them, who I admired uh, very highly, said, what's your main work as a pastor? 
That's a rough question when you're standing in front of everybody. And I said to feed the flock of God. And all the pastors there went, Amen. And it was a great relief. Because why did I know that? Because I read this book. This is what Paul was saying to the elders at Ephesus. Feed the flock. This is what Peter is saying to all the other elders. Feed the flock. Feed them what? The word of God. Give examples. Model various things so they can understand what you're talking about. Give them examples from your own life. You're not perfect. Tell them. But show them Christ. Always. Always. Take them by the hand if you have to. And say, we're going over there. Now, I can't make you drink, but I want to get you over there to Christ. I want you to all understand this is a serious matter. To to say to someone, we believe the Lord has gifted you to be a pastor, not just a preacher. Got to be able to preach. But he's got to be able to be a feeder, a flock tender. He's got to be able to weep with them that weep. He's got to be able to rejoice with them that rejoice. It's not just, well, I preached a pretty good sermon this morning. Maybe it wasn't so good as last week. This is not the issue. It is representing Christ to Christ's people and serving them. Even when they're not pleasant. I thank God for the love some of the men in this congregation have had toward me and their reproofs and their criticisms. And many of them have made me a better man. That's Christian love. So, You've got to be someone who's available to the congregation. You've got to be somebody who you know something about. I didn't get to that passage. I will next time, God willing. But we beseech you, Paul says, to know them that labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Get to know them. You know why? You can start hearing them better. I gave my testimony a while back and one of the brothers said, my wife says that she understands her pastor better now. Some of you have never even asked me what my testimony is. You need to know the men you're dealing with. You need to know them. And then you can say, you know, he's not perfect, but I can see this stuff here. Brethren, desiring to be a bishop is a good work, but it doesn't make a man a bishop. It just opens the door to find out if he's qualified. So a bishop has a huge responsibility. I will give account. Brother Clarence will give an account. Pastor Stephen will give an account. All of the men that I know will give an account to God in the day of judgment that you will not give. So we need to be conscious. We need to be in reality. We need to know that this is God's body. This is Christ's blood-bought body. And there are to be people in the pulpit 
that love you enough to encourage you, hold your hands when you're weeping, work through difficulties again and again, um, and rebuke you, and you start running off the rails. It needs to be a loving rebuke, but it needs to be a well-placed rebuke. How can you say that? Because Jesus looked at Peter, who he dearly loved, and said, get behind me, Satan. You don't savor the things of God. Anybody here think Peter forgot that encounter? It was ministered by love. So brethren, think, look in the scriptures, and let us keep praying that the Lord will bring another man to labor here. <clears throat> that being said, I will bring this to a close and we will, we will continue and, and finish it, God willing, next week. We will have the Lord's Supper in just a few moments, but let's pray and bring this part of our worship to an end. Then we will have the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> Would you stand with me and let me pray. Father, I am incapable of expressing to these people or any people how big thy love is. But I can tell them when they're unclear about thy love. To look at the cross of Jesus Christ and see that thou didst hang him on that cross and that thou didst pour out thy fury and thy anger upon him that he might look upon us with love and not hate, that he might look upon us as free men and not criminals, as sons and not just pardoned lawbreakers. We thank thee for thy love, O Christ. May we walk in it every day, and may that love so overflow in our hearts that we would, that it would flow out to thy people. And we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, brethren, we're going to take um, about a 10-minute break before we have the Lord's Supper if you need the facility.